it's just such a pleasure to be here. It's really wonderful. I'm thrilled to be sitting again in a place where I've been sitting for 20 years. I have the wonderful pleasure of walking around and recognizing places that were significant to me and moments that were significant to me. I was thrilled um, listening to Jack's talk last night. I love that talk about spiritual journey. It's true that I've heard that talk at least 10 times, <laughs> maybe 15, maybe you have too. It doesn't matter. Actually, it's better um, because as I listen to it, I kind of know what's coming and I know what story, which I'm going to love, is going to come up. And I actually can do little riffs around some of the stories because I have time to do that. So doing little riffs and thinking, well, I'll talk about this tomorrow night and I'll talk about that tomorrow night. At one point, I thought to myself, this is so wonderful to hear. It's so thrilling to hear this. I wish that I could be the yogi that I was 18 years ago, 20 years ago, whenever it was, sitting in the back next to that very door on that side, listening to this and feeling absolutely thrilled to hear it. And then I thought, what an odd thing to think. I am thrilled to hear it. Right now, I'm thrilled to hear it. I'm every bit as thrilled, maybe more thrilled, because I know it's true. But what I was thinking about today is how I'm assuming that all of you were thrilled by it, because whether we've been practicing for a long time, or we're just starting, or not so newly starting, there's always some part of us that knows that there's some part that resonates to the truth. At the time that I heard the words 18, 20 years ago, I had no sense of really how to do this practice and no confidence that I could or no reason to be confident that I could, certainly. I had a great deal of confusion, but I knew it was true. And I knew that it was what I needed to do. On some level, we all know. I was thinking about which line from last night's talk I would talk about tonight. And then actually I heard the line this morning in the instructions. There's one piece of the instruction. I wonder if you heard it as I did. The instruction was sit without struggle and without agenda. And I thought that's exactly the instructions for this practice, exactly the instructions for life. Would that we could. Really, that's the whole crux of the difficulty. Would that we could. We have such struggles, even though we know that struggling is the cause of suffering. And we have so many hopes for ourselves, for the people that are dear to us, for our communities, for the planet. How to have those hopes, how to know what it is that we want, and be able to recognize at the same time the truth of what it is that we have, and to be able to make a space where 
in that truth we are in fact invigorated to act rather than demoralized from, and from acting. That's really what mindfulness is. It's that balanced, awakened awareness of what the truth is in this moment, of what my experience is on the outside, what my experience of my thought is, what's, what's my truth in this moment, my whole truth, what's happening inside and outside, and what's my response to what's happening. Am I struggling with it? Am I open to it? Do I like it? Do I not like it? To see all of it and to be able to hold it in some space in which there's not only the space of wise seeing, but the space of wise understanding for what the responses that are possible are. And also what the wisest, most compassionate, kindest response is. It's a space that gives us the energy to make that response in our lives, outside of here. Maybe a response that's an action in here. Maybe the response of bringing attention to the next moment. Often, it needs to be the response of surrender to a moment of discomfort with wisdom. This is what's happening. Let me examine it fully and see fully what's true about it. We are continually challenged in our lives. It's not easy for anybody. Everybody's story is different. But life is very difficult. To be in a life, in a body, in a relationship, is to be continually challenged. I think when we really acknowledge that, not that we can fix it up and make it better, but this is the fabric of life. It's not a mistake. That's what's true. This is how it is. Then we can really address ourselves with zeal and with with determination and with vigor to waking up. I had an experience um, in January of this year. I was at a conference in Southern California. I'm telling you this story because I want you to know that I think everybody knows that, that this is the difficulty and life is hard. And here's the story. I was in Southern California and I was at a conference and uh, it was somewhere outside of Santa Barbara and uh, on the last day of that conference, early in the morning when we were leaving, a van came to take seven or eight of us to the airport in Los Angeles. And I always liked to sit in front with the driver. It was early in the morning, it was foggy, the ride from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles is long, pretty boring freeway, nothing much happening there. And um, the people in the back mostly dozing, sleeping, and we're riding along, and I'm kind of hanging out there, and it was the same driver that had driven us down to Santa Barbara a week before. He's driving along, and at one point he leaned over to me and he said, uh, I'm pretty sleepy. Do you suppose it'd be all right with your friends in the back if I drove off when I see the next restaurant on the left side of the road and get some coffee, because I'm afraid I'm going to fall asleep? Will it be all right with your friends? I said, I'm sure it'll be fine with my friends (laughs) if you drive off and find that place. But in the meantime, I was a little alarmed because there were no places and we're out and sort of the boonies. So at this point, I am awake and I'm determined to keep him up. And so I turn to face him and I start to have a conversation with him. 
And I had already driven with him to Santa Barbara, so I knew that his name was Mohammed, and he lived in Los Angeles, and he had come from Bombay, and his wife was still there with visa problems, and he had a mother but not a father, and two sisters and three brothers. And that his restaurant that he had opened in Los Angeles had failed because the neighborhood had changed. I knew all of that stuff. So I was finished with the demographics, but I wanted to have a conversation with him. So I said, um, Mohammed, you're a Muslim, right? And he said, yeah, I am. And I said, uh, do you pray? And he said, of course. And I said, every day? And he said, of course. And I said, five times? And he said, yes, I do. Said, I know all the answers to this question, by the way, but I was looking to make conversation. <laughs> so I said, uh, do you need to have a special number of people to pray, or can you pray alone? He said, it doesn't matter. You can pray with yourself, or you can pray with other people. I said, what do you say when you pray? Tell me. He said, well, it's very short. It's just seven sentences. I said, tell them to me. And he starts, and he said, well, wait, I don't know them in English. I said, don't tell me in English. Tell me how you say them. So he says his seven sentences. Then I said, does it take you long or short to pray? He said, well, I said, it doesn't matter. You could pray fast, and you could pray long. Depends. If you have a little time, you can pray fast. And if you have a lot of time, then you can take a long time with the praying. Then he said, but you know, it doesn't matter if you pray short, because really you're supposed to be praying all day. Those same things that you're supposed to be feeling and knowing, you're supposed to be feeling and knowing them all day long, so it doesn't matter how long. And he said, and besides, it doesn't matter how long you pray. He said, I know people, they stand and pray all day, but it doesn't mean anything. Their prayers don't go anyplace. I said, well, why is that, Mohammed? He says, because they're not connected in their heart. You have to be connected in your heart. I said, how do you get to be connected in your heart? He said, well, you have to know. You have to really know. He said, you have to look around and know how it is in this life. You have to look around and know how it is in this life is like we're in the middle of an ocean Someone dropped us in, and we don't know how to swim. That's how you're supposed to call out in prayer. So, I said to him, Mohammed, I see a Wendy's over there on the side of the road. <laughs> Do you want to pull off and get some coffee? And he said, no, I'm awake. <laughs> So what we're trying to do is recognize that we're all in an ocean. We don't know how to swim. It's complicated to stay afloat. There are all kinds of difficulties in staying afloat. But then we get to be wise a little bit, and we float better. We know it's not a mistake that it's difficult. It's just what it is. And we go from knowing a little bit, which is, I think, what brings all of us here, to knowing some more. I once had a friend, I have that same friend and a teacher, who said about the teachers he had known and the teacher he himself was, he said, I know a little bit. He said, I know people who know with a small k. I know with a small k. He said, I know some people who know with a capital K. There are people who know with a capital K. I know with a small k. 
I don't think it's about knowing people who know with a small K or a capital K. I think it's we ourselves who go from knowing from a small K to knowing with a capital K over time. I am confident that this practice is the, com- is the practice that allows us to open continually over time with insight through to really complete and deep and profound knowing, really visceral knowing. I know in myself over the 20 years since I started in the back of that room, I, th- I think I went from thinking uh, this might be true to this sounds true to this really is true. And really, there's a great joy in discovering this really is true. The great value, I think, in discovering that this really is true, that we can relax in our lives, that they're trustworthy, that the heart has the capacity to understand and to respond with kindness and compassion, allows us to move from our nervous system somewhat disturbed and frightened and confused. I think we live a little distance from ourselves. I think our nervous system moves a little bit over and becomes synchronous with our heart. And we really become able to live in our lives and fully inhabit them. It's as if our lives come into focus a little bit better. We see clearly. Do you know that vipassana really means clear seeing? clear seeing of what's true. That's really what we're practicing here every moment, clear seeing. We're practicing with a very bare bones practice in order to make it easier to see clearly. We don't do a lot. We sit still, we walk around, we eat, we take showers, we do what the texts call delicately respond to the call of nature. But there isn't much more that we do, really. And all the time we pay attention. We pay attention to see what's fundamentally true about life. What's real about it. My friend Lou Richmond says, being a Buddhist is being a realist. Seeing what's really so. You know, when we get to see what's really so, we get to see three things that I can remember hearing about and then realizing. Insight is different from hearing about. It's like hearing about and then really knowing that it's true. Sometimes I think it's the difference between um, uh, knowledge and understanding. Like someone tells you something and it goes into your brain or your memory bank or your intellect or whatever it is that it goes into. And then it stays there. It's something that you heard about and you know. And then all of a sudden, at some point, it drops into your heart. And then you really know it. So I remember hearing insights. There are three things that we'll come to know when we practice. One of them is that everything passes. I got that. Most people get that. Rang true to me. I realized at whatever age I heard that, that I'd gotten to be that age and I wasn't young anymore. I certainly realized that um, experiences that I had wouldn't happen again, that yesterday was yesterday. 
There's a difference, though, between knowing that everything passes and really knowing it. My discovery of the difference is that when I came to really know it, the difference that it made in me was that difficult times became easier to deal with, that the possibility of abiding in intimate awareness with discomfort, with pain, with sadness, with grief, was made easier. I could do it because I knew it wouldn't last forever. The other great gift of knowing that it won't last forever is that I began to cherish more deeply the moments of real joy, knowing that they also are ephemeral and won't last. I spent less time caught up in things that reduced my joy because I knew that I needed to be present for them. And after a while, I began to discover that it wasn't only in being more comfortable with the distressing times and more present for the joyous times, but more present for all the times, because whatever the times are, they won't be here again. Yesterday won't be here again. I can remember the ways in which that insight of impermanence became visceral for me here can, of course, become alive and awake and true for you in any moment of activity, because it's true about every moment of experience. When you eat your lunch, you'll start with an appetite, and then the appetite will disappear. So that passed. Actually, the joy of the meal will pass as well, because when you don't have an appetite anymore, it's not so fun to eat. It's true, isn't it, that the great pleasure of eating depends on having an appetite as well as having food. And the appetite passes. Everything passes. Each breath arises and passes away. Each distressing mind state passes away. Each wonderful, numinous mind state passes away. I think I had more of an intimate connection with um, the passage of, with impermanence in my years here certainly as the years collected, by just the collection of the years, when I was able to say, this is my fifth year here, or my tenth year here, or my fifteenth year here. And when I was here, often for the whole twenty days, I noticed I was marking my days by the waxing and waning of the moon. And I'd see the moon getting bigger, and the moon getting smaller. And I think that one of my most profound senses of change was around the waxing and waning of the moon. And when the sun sets at a different time every day, and the sun comes up at a different time every day. And when I do my walking practice, I'd watch the sun passing across the sky, and had such a sense of the sun passing across the sky again and again and again. And it would pass across the sky 20 times, and then I'd go home. But there was some sense of connection with that passing across the sky which I, I remember as one of my intimate, most intimate connections with impermanence. I don't know how it will arise for you, but my, my, my absolute confidence is that it is part of every moment if we pay attention to it. Don't have to wait for a moon or a sun. Every moment has that same message of impermanence in it. We find out the truth about suffering, that clinging is suffering. I could have heard a million times the truth 
about the heart has the capacity to open to the fullness of our experience, including our suffering. But I would not have believed it until I experienced it. I could hear it, and it sounds good, but I might have thought, I think I did think, that may be true for some people, but not for me. That there are pains about which my heart cannot open, and parts of my story that my heart cannot hold. Maybe some people with better hearts, different hearts, their hearts can do it, but not my heart. And all you need is one experience of peace and knowing it. One experience of awareness of this is a moment of peace, this is a moment of equanimity. To be clear that it's a possibility for you. Everybody here has had a moment of peace, a moment of contentment, a moment of equanimity since you're here. And you have the same life. Nothing changed in your life, in your situation, in your, mo- in your body. It's all the same. It's the same story. But once you discover that is the capacity of the heart and of the mind, we can open and hold our experience. Even difficult experience. It's not that the difficult experience goes away. Grief is grief. Sadness is sadness. And say, this is true. I am sad. I am grief-stricken. I am lonesome. I am longing. I'm restless. I'm unhappy. Whatever it is. And there's a space around it. I can see it. I know it for what it is. It's the truth of the moment. And it's only the truth of the moment. It's like going from a place of tightness in the mind to a place of expansiveness. Today is the uh, seventh day of the eight days of Passover. And the story of Passover is the going out from uh, being trapped in captivity to liberation. And part of the Passover uh, liturgy says, tell the story as if it is happening to you right now, not as if it's something that happened to people a long time ago. Tell it as if it's happening to you right now, because it is happening to you right now. The word in Hebrew for Egypt is Mitzrayim, and Mitzrayim means a narrow place. And so when we say, I am going out from Mitzrayim, or I am free, I'm out from Egypt, it means I am released from a narrow place. And quite literally, you probably feel it. I do. That the mind is caught in a knot, and the heart is tight. And then suddenly, there's a great release. Maybe not for long, but for some amount of time. And we're free. I think I go out from Egypt many times every day. Each time I'm caught, and then I'm not, and then I'm caught, and then I'm not. I think it's not about being out and free once and for all. We may in our lives live in a free country and be externally free, but internally we are continually involved in the challenge to come out from being caught in a narrow place. When I heard about the uh, insights of impermanence and the insights of suffering when I began my practice, they rang true to me. I did not have such a 
visceral connection with them. I didn't really connect with them as fully as was my experience after some years of practice, but they certainly sounded right to me. What didn't sound right to me is the third insight. I got to hear about the insight of selflessness, that there was no one who owned the story. Didn't feel like that to me. Certainly felt like this was me in there, and that this was my story. And I didn't get it at all. I actually didn't know why I would want to get it. I actually was kind of worried about there not being a me in there. Actually, it's tremendously liberating. And I tell you that in case it doesn't make a lot of sense to you, when I first heard these teachings and I heard about the insight of impermanence, I said, okay, get that. The insight of suffering, I certainly get that. And the insight of anatta, of selflessness. Nothing that's separate from anything else, just fragile and uh, ephemeral experience arising and passing away. I thought, they're wrong. (laughs) But I liked everything else I heard, and so I thought to myself, two out of three is not bad. (laughs) And everything else sounded so good, I decided to stay. I I actually thought, sooner or later, they'll figure out they're wrong. (laughs) And then one day, I didn't tell anybody about it either because I secretly thought that. And then one day, some, maybe five, six, who knows how many years later, I was walking. I can show you the very spot where I was walking. I was doing walking practice very diligently, attending to the arising and passing away of sensations in the feet as I moved them and placed them and moved them and placed them. And suddenly, I knew with absolute clarity that there was no one there. And I felt really light and really joyous. And I remember telling Jack about it. I wonder if he remembers. I remember telling him about it and saying, you know, I'm actually surprised. I feel very light about it. I said, the other thing I'm really surprised about is I don't feel proud of myself. I feel like it's a big thing to discover this. It's important, you know. It's taken me a long time. And, you know, I often feel proud of myself when I do something well, and I thought it was a good thing to do. And I said, you know, it's the strangest thing. I don't feel proud of myself. And he said, no. He said, that makes a lot of sense. He said, "Uh, it's completely impersonal. It's just the time. And it was a really remarkable kind of difference for me to discover that it was actually a pleasure not to feel proud of myself. That you have to feel proud of you when really there's that sense of it's just what's happening in this time. You don't have to feel proud of yourself and you don't have to feel humiliated either. It's just what it is. It's the karma of the moment. It's what's happening according to conditions because it's the time for it to happen. There's nobody who has to own it. It's a great relief. There's that wonderful line from uh, Wei Wu Wei, the Chinese philosopher. Remember it from early on in my practice, although I never understood it until I understood it. And the line is, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. (laughs) It's a great relief. So, 
what I wanted to talk about was how in this practice we work diligently with attentiveness awaiting the arising of those insights. Can't decide when you get up in the morning, today I'm going to have an insight. At 11.15 this morning, I'm definitely going to have an insight. Doesn't work that way. But we can set up the conditions for insight to happen. That's really what we've done. We've set up the really perfect conditions for insight to happen. And we have the perfect tool for it. And the tool is mindful attention, bare attention, resting with as much composure as we can in the truth of the moment. So it's particularly difficult sometimes to do when the truth of the moment is an upsetting mind state or an upsetting body state because we can't rest with such composure in them and we begin to wish very much that they go away. When our experience is pleasant, it's just pleasant. And say, this is really nice, really nice, comfortable. Actually, we often don't pay a lot of attention to comfortable or pleasant or happy or content. Sometimes people come to an interview and they tell me, I haven't had a mind state all day. And actually what they mean is I haven't had a difficult mind state all day. Actually, when we haven't had a difficult mind state, we've probably been quite content or pleased or happy or energized or interested. All of which, if we noticed, would give us a tremendous amount of confidence. I think because we essentially have animal nervous systems and we're on the lookout for fearful things or frightening things. When a moment is pleasant, even lovely, we tend not to pay too much attention to it. We say, well, it's all right. That was an all right moment. There's another all right moment. But we're kind of on the lookout for what might be a not all right moment coming ahead down the road. And certainly when one comes up in our experience, so, uh-oh, here it is. And then we get alarmed and we move away from our experience. So there are a number of mind states that you most often our body correlates that are uncomfortable and so they get called difficult mind states. Actually, they're really quite wonderful in terms of waking up. I actually don't know how we can really wake up without them because it's through paying attention to the arising of, sub of difficulty and the struggle that happens in the mind around them that we come to really appreciate the situation of suffering in our lives. And there are five predictable kinds of difficult energies. Often these are called hindrances because they hinder clear seeing. I have the sense of them as being flurries in the mind. Like And there are five predictable kinds of difficult energies. Often these are called hindrances because they hinder clear seeing. I have the sense of them as being flurries in the mind, like storms in the mind, as if we could see clearly 
everything clear, everything clear, seeing arising and passing away. And all of a sudden, the screen is all muddy or ruffled. And I think the screen gets ruffled with five different energies. They're traditionally explained in the text as really energies that uh, get dressed in stories and then we believe them. They're just really energies. If you think about the energy of torpor, actually it's it's the minus energy of torpor. It's the lack of energy of torpor and the tremendous energy of restlessness. They're both two ends of the scale of energy in the mind. One of them is a dip in energy in the mind, and the other one is a super amount of energy in the mind. Just dips in energy. You know, we don't worry about dips of energy much in our in our physical body. When we feel really energized, we say, this is great. feel really energized. Go for a run. When we feel tired, we say, I'm a little tired. I'll sit down or I'll rest. I'll relax. We don't struggle with it very much. I tell you these two particular energies first and begin by talking about not struggling with them. There's a really lovely thing happened uh, yesterday on my flight coming down. One of the things that I will say as the overriding instruction for all the difficult energies is don't struggle with them. They're just a difficult energy. It's all about having that sort of attitude towards them. They arise legitimately because the mind is tired or the mind has a sudden hit of energy because the mind has come in contact with something pleasant or unpleasant or because the mind has a kind of a slippery energy in it and it can't hold things in good focus. They're all energies. Yesterday I was getting on the plane uh, in the afternoon and... um, as I got on my uh, Alaska Airlines flight, I was going down my the row, and a very uh, distinguished-looking um, older man, well, I am old, he was elderly, turned out that when we talked about it later, he was coming on 90, so he was really dapper man, said to me, I think I've seen you before. And then he said, didn't I see you this morning at some sort of a, Buddhist thing or something, and uh, I, I realized, you know, yesterday morning was Wednesday, so I'd been at Spirit Rock, and I'd been teaching, and I and then I remembered that there was an elderly man sitting that I had not recognized, but there are a lot of people there, and I hadn't seen him before, and he didn't stay afterwards. He said, I came with my son. I was visiting my son. I came with him to that class. He said, I wanted to meet you afterwards, but uh, there were people talking to you. He said, so I'm thrilled to talk to you now. He said, that was a wonderful class. He said, I love that meditation. That was great. I slept for the whole 45 minutes. (laughs) And then he said, I felt so refreshed afterwards. And I thought, that is so far out. I mean, it just wasn't a problem to him. He didn't say, I had the hindrance of torpor. And then he said, and what you said afterwards, that made a lot of sense also. It's all in the attitude, look. And then he told me about his life and the not-so-long-ago death of his wife and that you have to have a good attitude and you have to go on. And he actually teaches a class in Palm Springs called Life Begins at 80. 
So I want to tell you this. I was thrilled with that. I thought it was so wonderful, you know. If we don't have a certain expectation for how it should be, we don't judge it. It's a great meditation. I slept the whole time. So refreshed afterwards. You know, maybe you come here and you'll sleep for the first day or two, and the mind will refresh itself, and on the third, you'll have some wonderful, deep intimation of truth. Maybe that's what your mind needs to do until it has the strength to see clearly. You don't know. It has its own plan for you. I used to think when I came on retreat, um, after a while when I got to be familiar with retreat experience, uh, I used to think that, uh, I used to tell people it was like going to Space Mountain and Disneyland where there's, you may know that Space Mountain is a roller coaster that's uh, indoors, so it's in the dark. So you can't anticipate the curves. You just strap yourself in and stay in the ride until it's over. And when I first had that vision of how it was, it wasn't an attractive vision. I was saying it more out of an, a sort of an alarm, like girding myself for that trip, like putting on the seatbelt really tight on Space Mountain. I began to actually trust that that would happen and that that would be wonderful, that I could trust the mind to provide for me the next piece online that needed to be seen and that needed to be acknowledged and that needed to be healed and that needed to be brought into the light of awareness, that I really couldn't plan it. And that actually that was what was quite wonderful about it. So that I could say that same thing now about Space Mountain, but do it as if it were an exciting and wonderful thing. You don't know. But what I trust is that what comes up is what needs to be healed next. So there's something about um, the wisdom that we begin to accumulate as we practice that changes our relationship to torpor or sleepiness or restlessness or lust or anger or doubt, all of the five hindrances. And they have something to do with growing wisdom, I think. I think that what my experience has been is that as I've begun to be more confident and more and more sure that things pass, that suffering is one situation, but freedom is another situation, and that it's a possibility of the heart and my heart as well. And that it's what's happening. It's the karma of the moment that I began to be less frightened of difficult times in practice, and specifically of difficult energies. Because the kind of stories that we frighten ourselves with when any of those uncomfortable energies come up are really just stories. We tell ourselves a story, this will never end. But it will. And when you know that more and more, you tell yourself that story less and less. And so the energy, whatever it is, is less frightening. Or we tell ourselves in a moment of real um, confrontation with difficulty, it's all suffering. But it's not all suffering. Sometimes it's suffering, and sometimes it's liberation. Sometimes it's the absence of suffering. And we tell ourselves sometimes a story that says, it's all my fault. I did it wrong. If I had only done this or done that. But it's nobody's fault. It's the karma of the moment. 
It's the karma of the moment. It's this moment arising because of every moment that ever happened, ever. And what we bring to that moment conditions what the next moment will be. And when we know that, then we are really quite able to be alertly up to bring to that moment attention and compassion and space to make the wise, balanced, compassionate choice. We're able more and more to see all of the hindrance energies for what they are, energies dressed up in stories, transient energies. And then we're able to do more than just name them. Naming them as the beginning, really important is to feel them. I mentioned before the energy of, uh, or the low, the lack of energy that we call sloth and torpor, sleepiness. I had a wonderful teaching from uh, Usivali one time here in this very place. I was telling him about my practice habits. I used to like to go to sleep early, well, reasonably early. I'd go to sleep right after the last sitting at night. And then I'd get up at one or two in the morning and I'd come here and sit in the hall. Actually, I have wonderful memories because James and my schedule is exactly opposite to each other. I would come in the hall at one or two. There'd be nobody here except James right over here. And then I'd sit down right in the back over there. And we'd sit for a while. And then by and by, James would get up and go out. And then I would sit the rest of the night. And I assume he went to sleep somewhere. And I felt that we were um, doing a vigil together. We hadn't decided to. But I felt that we were kind of keeping the vigil going here. But I'd come down at one or two in the morning and start to sit. And I'd come all the way down from the caravansary and with alertness I would have woken up by myself and I'm awake and I'm going to go sit and I'd be all excited and I'd get dressed. And I'd come down here and five minutes later I'd be sleepy. And then I'd get up and walk a little bit, sit a little bit and get sleepy and get up, walk, sit, walk, sit, sleep, up, down. Walk, sit, nap, up, walk, sleep, nap, up. And I had an interview with Usivali, and I told him about my situation. I said, listen, maybe I should stay in bed. Maybe it's not so wise to get up and come and then do this up, down, up, down all night. It's not worth it. And he said, no, it is worth it. He said, it does not matter how long it's you sleep. It matters when you get up for as long as you're up to know that you're up. In the moment that you're up, say, I'm up. Whoa, I'm up. Use that wakefulness of that moment to condition attention in the next moment and the next moment and the next moment because it will. And maybe not for very long, but as long as it does, use the energy of wakefulness. Not just I'm awake, but I'm awake and I see the breath and I feel this feeling, and here's the next breath, and use it. That way you cultivate it. I'm awake, I'm up, and. So it's really taking that energy into the next moment. He said a wonderful line, which I've said hundreds of times since. He said, every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. I love that. It thrills me to think about that. 
think about I'm erasing every time I see clearly. I think if I can erase faster than I can scribble, <laughs> I used to imagine some huge blackboard that was my mind, and I was erasing. And I also knew I was scribbling, so I had to erase faster. So I give that to you as a practice for you. When you get up, not a moment's thought about how long you slept and how it'll never work or where was I or what was that all about. I'm up and I'm breathing out. I'm awake and I'm breathing in. I'm up, out. That's all. Just here. I'm up and I'm here. What was, was. Not helpful to go back. The other correlate energy to uh, lack of sleepiness and torpor is restlessness. It's also a story, you know, I'm going to explode if I sit another minute on the Zafu. It's just really high energy in the body or in the mind. It's not comfortable. So when I say it's just energy, doesn't mean that I know that, I don't know that it's very uncomfortable. But it's just energy. And we don't need to be frightened about it. Actually need to feel it. We're afraid to feel it sometimes. So we tell ourselves stories about it, or we name it restless, restless. Once you know what it is, feel it. And then it's bubbling and tingling and shivering or vibrating. It's whatever it is. And then it's less of it. And then it's less of it. Or it's more of it. And then it's changing. And then it's something else and it's something else. But when you've moved into it, then there's no struggle around it. The struggle is only when we're not home to ourselves. We're really just coming back to ourselves all the time. I think we are a little bit away from ourselves because we're afraid to come home. But it's perfectly safe at home. It's really perfectly safe to be here. That's the only place that we can see clearly. And when we see clearly, we see how this moment can only be this moment, but it's changing. And it's changing along with the karma of this moment and the attitude and the intention and the awareness that we bring to it. The energy of doubt is a kind of a slippery energy to feel because you don't feel it like torpor or restlessness. Actually, you don't feel it in your body very much. You feel it more, you experience it more as a thought. Like all of a sudden there's a thought, I can't do this, or it's not a good practice, or everybody will get it but me, or uh, I should have taken up something else, or it's the wrong, s- I really, I should have gone to Maui, to that other retreat, or in a different season, I'd be able to do this better. Actually, more trouble for me since, um, I think I did not have so much trouble with uh, a sense of doubt about whether or not this was a doable practice. I thought I could pay attention. I doubted actually more, I had more of a great doubt about, I doubted that even if I could stay present, that it would really turn out to be okay. I really doubted that, the great doubt that the heart has the capacity to hold it. Every once in a while I'd experience it more as a sense that it's not true. Life is too hard for people. And I could make a big story out of that and get very melancholy about it. 
And then by and by, when I realized, by actually by paying attention, by paying attention really carefully, feeling very much the feelings in my body, kind of screw the lens back together so instead of the attention slipping around, it's quite steady. And when you see steadily, you understand that there's no one who can't do it. And that really peace is possible. It's one of the conditions of the heart. The two other very difficult mind states, which I've left for last purposely, they're really um, energies of longing and energies of uh, pushing away, energies of grasping and energies of pushing away. Just two modes of energy that the mind, when challenged, falls into. Sometimes the energy of grasping or wanting or longing comes as a, as a, as a sudden desire for something, a thought about something. We fall in love with someone at the retreat or we think a lot about what the lunch is going to be, or we think a lot about what we'll eat when we get home from this retreat, when we can finally eat what it is that we like, spend a lot of time planning a homecoming menu. Imagine people are laughing because they've already done that. And no matter how much planning you do of that homecoming menu, or even the lustful pleasure of thinking about the homecoming meeting with one's beloved, if that's part of your life at this point, no matter how much you think about it and however pleasant the thought is, it's not the real thing. And after a while, the thought is not so pleasant because it's not the real thing. It's just a thought. And after a while, it gets to be really unpleasant to have that thought and have it not happening. And so surprisingly, it turns out that sensual thoughts, although initially you kind of get a little hit in the body about them, are not so pleasant. They're not as pleasant as a peaceful mind and a peaceful body. They're longing. And if you stop the story and feel the feeling in your body, you find that that's true. You also find, if you feel the feeling in your body, that it's just a feeling in the body and it dissipates. I left the feeling of aversion or anger for the last because it's such a big thing. And also because it's such a prominent feature of all of these difficult energies because because they're difficult, we rather would not have any of them. So the mind has a certain amount of aversion to any of these energies to begin with, or certainly to end with. Lust turns out not to be so pleasant. Doubt is definitely not pleasant. Restlessness is not pleasant. Torpor is not pleasant. Grumbly mind is not pleasant. Some people, probably many of you, all of you, have experienced days when the mind just grumbles. It's just grumbling at everything. The lunch is bad and the wind is bad and the person next to me is breathing too hard and everything is wrong. It's like the mind having a fit. It just does. And actually it's wonderful to have it happen here because often in our lives, We've, we're able to take grumbling and feel correct about it. Like, this is a situation in the world I ought to grumble about. This is wrong. But here's a situation where we set up the conditions that are really actually quite comfortable. Really, I mean, food is really quite lovely, and 
a quiet situation. We set up every way in which we could relax and be peaceful. And the mind begins anyway to do its dramas and chew over its stories and bring up all of its films of past life in this life experience and maybe sometimes even in past life experience. That it's hard to stay comfortable. And a lot of our experience is judgment and criticism. Numbers of people said to me today in interviews, I'm so critical of myself and of everybody, but the worst is I'm critical of myself. really want to suggest that one of the ways, the way to work with all of these energies is to be attentive to them, really. To, to really recognize them. To be able to say, this is an energy. Instead of it frightening me away, let me know it well. Let me move into the place where it is. Let me sit in the place of that energy, really. Not to add to this uncomfortable energy, the energy of fleeing from it. At least let me be in this energy. And then I'll feel it for what it is. And we feel a judgment come up in the mind. Instead of fleeing from it or thinking yet another judgment, oh dear, I just had a judgment. Instead to say, whoa, there's that thought. How do I feel? My body is tight. My mind is tight. This is uncomfortable. I'll take a breath in and out and in and out. Now I'm a little more comfortable. Discomfort is so unpleasant. May I be peaceful? May I be happy? It's really important because a number of people are working with loving kindness as an antidote to um, aversive feelings to not do it as an aversive reaction to aversive feelings. Feel the feeling. It's not pleasant. The most clear sense of connection that I have to my metta practice is when it comes from a sense of really being present for the impulse that gave rise to the metta. If I'm uncomfortable and I know it, that's a really sincere recognition place from which I can say, may I be peaceful, may I be happy. And I really have understood the pain of that aversion. I haven't skirted around it, I haven't avoided it. There's a very good news, by the way, because as I've talked about all these energies, I've talked about different things that you could do for this energy or that energy. Actually, it's easier than that. You could just pay attention in the next moment, or in this moment. In this moment, it's the only moment you can pay attention. Pay attention to this breath, to this sensation, to this step, moment after moment after moment after moment. One of the things that happens as we pay attention, moment after moment after moment, is that the mind becomes more concentrated. One of the things that happens, you probably discover it in your practice as days go by, is that as the mind becomes more concentrated, there are certain qualities that become more evident to you. There's a little bit more calmness in the mind, and it's a natural antidote to restlessness. There's a little bit more ability for the mind to stay one-pointed. It's the natural antidote to the lustful mind looking around for more satisfaction. There's a little bit more pleasure in the mind, and it's the natural antidote to antipathy, to aversion. There's a little bit more clarity of awareness, of knowing 
what exactly is happening in the moment. That's the beginning of a breath. That's the end of a breath. That's the beginning of the next one. That's the end. Those moments of clarity are themselves the antidotes to torpor. And we begin to be able more and more to sustain our attention with whatever experience is present. And it's the quality of sustaining which is the antidote to the thoughts about doubt. Just is. It's a great value, actually, to work comfortably or intimately with the hindrances. I suppose it would be... uh, um, I suppose it would seem sensible to wish that one could have a retreat free from all storms of hindrance. May I just sit in bliss for 10 days? Sometimes maybe that happens for people. There are certainly periods in practice that are filled with bliss, not momentarily, actually sustained periods of bliss and rapture. They, like everything else, pass away. But I think there's something particularly wonderful about acknowledging these difficult energies and being present to them because we learn so much from them. This is the story of our life. We are perpetually challenged in our life. And the mind is perpetually responding to challenge when it wobbles by wobbling into lust or wobbling into aversion, wobbling into torpor, wobbling into restlessness, and wobbling into doubt. Either the mind is steady and clear or it wobbles off into one of those five roots. That's what's happening all the time. And when we see it in ourselves, when we feel it in ourselves, when we live it in ourselves, we really become so much clearer about the real meaning of suffering. I think we come to see the truth of our own lives, the truth of everyone's life, is that no matter what our story is, the mind has the capacity to relate to our situation with tightening, and with aversion, fear, making grief around it, making anguish out of what is the situation. Or it has the possibility of saying, in wisdom, this is my situation. What is the wisest possible response? This is truly my situation. I feel it in every bit of myself. What is the wisest response now? When we do that, and we do not use up all the energy and struggle, we have the energy to make that wise response. There will be pain in our lives. There is pain in our lives. Pain in everybody's life. What we are working here with is that capacity around the truth of our life to have that space of wisdom so that we don't create extra anguish, suffering. Discovering that that's the possibility, which we can only discover in our own lives, is so thrilling. That's the point of this journey, really. And it's not a point that ends in our own experience, because when we are able to really discover truly the possibility of peace in our own lives and to live it, then we really make that as a teaching for everybody else around us. I actually don't think we could be doing this for ourselves. don't know of 
very many people who come to practice on behalf of all beings. I came to practice on behalf of what I thought was myself. But I came to practice out of personal pain, personal anguish. I think whether we know it or not, what we are doing is on behalf of all beings. We can only change this heart here. But as we do it, we do that on behalf of all beings. We do it as a lesson, as an example. We spread it. We don't add to the difficulty in the world. It's really a practice of uh, coming home, seeing that the view is fine from here. When Jack talked last night about the two views, about the looking at the houses nearby and looking way out, I was thinking we always have two views. We have the view, the proximal view of our life. And then what we hope to have when we see clearly is the grand view of life itself, not my life, but life. And from that view, there's a sense of real radical amazement and lightness and joy delight that allows us then to live in our life in a way that's quite wise and wonderful. Not without storms, but with wisdom about the storms. I think that's probably the last thing I'd like to say about the storms of the mind. The storms of the mind, you know, when there are weather changes outside, we don't get upset about them. We put on the right clothing for that weather. Or we take an umbrella. Or we say tomorrow probably the sun will shine. We know that. If you think about the inner storms, as just the same, coming and going, but really quite workable. Then we don't have to be afraid of them. And we can actually use them as the vehicle for waking up. So let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on 4-1798. It is an offering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.